Hey everyone, Fraser here. So today's interview is with Dr. Avi Loeb. Now I don't think he requires an introduction at this point. I've interviewed him before. You're probably familiar with all of his work, both in investigating Oumuamua, as well as his work on the Event Horizon Telescope and like 700 other papers. So we didn't spend a lot of time talking about Oumuamua, but more about what are some innovative ways that we can answer some of these really fundamental and exciting questions in space and astronomy, and why the scientific community is not as interested in searching for them as we as the people who are seeing the results might want it to be. So I, I really enjoy the conversation. I think Avi did too. Uh, I, obviously, it was like too short, we could have gone on for two or three times as long. And maybe in the future, we'll, we'll do that. But um, I hope you you all enjoyed, it, especially all of you who are asking me when this was going to happen. So here it is. Enjoy the interview. Okay, excellent. In theory, we're live. Uh, I've, as always, I require someone out there in the uh, in the audience to confirm our existence before we uh, can go any further. Otherwise, you know. You know, Descartes said, uh, "I think, therefore, I exist." For you, it's uh, someone else telling us. Yeah, something. yeah. I mean, every time we start a new episode here, it's always a dance with the greater anthropic principle. And, and each time, you know, the Copernican principle uh, carries the day. Uh, yep, right. people are telling us that we exist. Uh, okay. And so... How would we know that? Well, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I, that might be a new paper that you're going to have to work on to get to well, the Well, I, I actually wrote an essay about um, a variant on um, Descartes' uh, dictum that he said, uh, I think, therefore, I exist. And I said... Um, uh, I am a scientist, therefore I let nature educate me. Right. And, and you were able to fill an entire paper with this? Uh, it's an essay for Scientific American. It yeah, come okay. out in a few weeks. Yes. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. So this is like a spoiler <laughs> alert for something that you're working right. on right now. Um, no, no. Hey, uh, so for people who are wondering who I'm talking to, this is uh, Professor Avi Loeb from uh, Harvard, Breakthrough Starshot, and many other places. Of course, he's got a, a new book. Um, all about Oumuamua, which uh, we will probably touch on, but I've got a like, I don't know, that was like so three months ago. You're, you're like 15 papers in since that point. So I'm sure, you know, very little of your time is spent thinking about Oumuamua and you're, and you're off and running. But, uh, but, and this is the second time we've, we've had a chance to talk here on the channel. So thank you so much for the taking Thanks time for to uh, chat with us today. It's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, so, Let's get the Oumuamua part uh, out of the way so we can move on to the on to the other topics. And, you know, I mean, we've covered Oumuamua plenty here. Um, you know, we've talked about sort of what all the different possible theories are. And, you know, in your in your book about this, you make the case that that you think that it you know could very well be a some kind of artificial um, spacecraft from some other civilization. What is the smoking gun for you? Which is the piece of evidence that you just can't for the life of you think of an alternate natural piece of explanation? Well, there are two elements to it. One is the fact that it was flat uh, and had a very extreme shape, at least 10 times longer than wide they projected on the sky, just like a piece of paper tumbling in the wind. Uh, but the, the second most important piece of information was that it was pushed away from the sun by reflecting sunlight, most likely, because we didn't see any cometary tail, any gas coming off it. Now, I should say that, you know, uh, the latest uh, natural origin that was proposed was that it's a, a, a nitrogen iceberg. Before that, people suggested a hydrogen iceberg, mm -hmm. uh, pure hydrogen, and then it's transparent. We can't see the cometary tail. And the problem with that is, the hydrogen would evaporate along the journey. It wouldn't survive. We show that in a scientific paper. And then with the nitrogen iceberg, the problem is different. The, the one place where you, you see sort of a, a pure nitrogen is on the surface of Pluto, but that's a very thin surface. And most of Pluto is rock and water ice. And uh, if you just do the mass budget necessary, even if you assume that 10% up to 100% of all exoplutos, all Plutos around other stars, get their surface chipped off during an early violent phase when they are bumping into other rocks. And which, you know, all of this is quite optimistic. But if you imagine that, you know, most of the nitrogen that you can put on them 
is being chipped off into icebergs, uh, you don't have enough mass to account for Oumuamua as one of these uh, objects. And you are missing it by um, a factor of uh, at least 100 mm -hmm. relative to the total amount of mass we have in stars. So even if you take all the mass that we have in stars and you take account of the fact that most of it is hydrogen and helium, then you are left with some heavy elements. You put the nitrogen on the surface of Pluto-like planets. You need 100 times more mass in stars than we have. So that's, I think that's a big issue, uh, which was not accounted for in the very detailed papers by Dash and Jackson. Mm -hmm. um, and so it just illustrates the how challenging it is to come up with a natural origin. And, you know, the same is true for a dust bunny. There was a suggestion, maybe it's a, a cloud of dust particles, a hundred times less dense than air. And once again, you know, if it's lightweight, it could be pushed by reflecting sunlight. And the problem there is it may not sustain its uh, integrity. The material strength is not strong enough it, it, when it's heated by hundreds of degrees as it gets close to the sun. And uh, all of the natural interpretations of Oumuamua um, ended up uh, having a major flow in them. And to me, it sounded completely reasonable to consider the possibility that it's artificially made, given all these challenges. Mm -hmm. You know, if there was a simple uh, explanation to all of the properties of Oumuamua, I would accept that, but I'm driven by evidence and I pay, uh, I keep my eyes on the ball, not on the audience. Yeah. And indeed the audience is shouting a lot of things. You know, I get like every day, I get uh, tens of emails about my book with, from the general public, from people that are, and also from astronomers that are very inspired by the content. And they give me compliments, you know, like yesterday I got a compliment that I couldn't even show it to my wife because it was so strong. Like uh, you are uh, someone I would like to become when I grow older and you are the, the ideal scientist, things like that. You know, I get these messages. At the same time, I'm getting personal insults from mm -hmm. some of my for, for some of my colleagues even, you know, and you, you see this huge waves of ups and downs in the but most of it i should say like 98 percent of the emails i get are in the former category where they give me comment and to me you know i'm i don't really care about that feedback yeah. you know because what i'm doing is guided by my inner compass okay mm -hmm. and i i'm trying to tell the truth and the fact that i'm getting insults in return is is, is not so relevant to me because uh, you know, if someone, instead of attacking me personally, would come up, focus on the facts and come up with a nice explanation of those facts, that I would respect. It has nothing to do with me. Yeah. You know, science science is a, is a dialogue with nature, and sometimes we are wrong. And I'm not, you know, I, I could be wrong. I'm just putting it on the table as a possibility, and I'm trying to advocate for space archaeology. Basically, yeah. next time we see an object like that, we should send a spacecraft equipped with a camera so mm -hmm. that it can take a, a close-up photograph and tell us whether it's a rock or a, an artificial object. That's all I'm saying. And, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. In my case, a picture is worth 66,000 words, the number of words in my book. Well, it's an interesting uh, mission. I actually did an interview with somebody uh, a couple of weeks ago that they think with a um, with an ion engine attached to a an RTG, you could generate delta Vs of 100 kilometers per second and above, which would be enough not only to chase down an interstellar object like Oumuamua, but you could even, like Hayabusa style, retrieve a sample and return it back home. Yeah, that would be amazing. It would be, it would be, be incredible. If, uh, you know, if we do see something, as we get close to it, if we do see that it's not a natural object, obviously we would like to land on it because... First of all, we might be able to read off the label that says made on planet X. Second, we might want to bring that technology to Earth, even if it's not functional. You know, it may save us millions of years because, you know, most of the stars formed billions of years before the sun. And therefore, you know, they had civilizations that predated us by billions of years. And they may be dead by now, but they may have developed technologies that will take us into our future. We can leap into our future without waiting for Silicon Valley to invent those technologies. Well, but I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, you must agree that there, that there's probably, there could very well be uh, some perfectly natural explanation for, for what it is. Right. And even retrieving a sample from a 
asteroid, comet, Pluto, hydrogen, dust bunny fragment from another solar system would be one of the most important samples ever returned in the history of, of science. That's exactly my point. Uh, my point is this object is nothing like we have seen before because all of the natural interpretations talked about something that we've never seen before. We have never seen a nitrogen iceberg. We've never seen a hydrogen iceberg. And I say maybe it is an artificial. So no matter what, by getting more data on the next weird object, we will learn something new about the nurseries that prepare such babies, you know? And given that, what's the problem with discussing all possibilities? Why Why should the people be so uh, emotional about it? <laughs> yeah, well, I really yeah. yeah, I mean, I, and I definitely, you know, I have some opinions about about why I think that's that's happening. And I would, you know, we'll definitely again, I'd, I'd love to get into that a bit more. Um, but, you know, one of the other ideas that I that I heard you bring up, which I really liked, which was, you know, just this hunt for extra solar or in, in extra solar material, like you know, and, and many of your papers have covered this idea. Omomor or Borisov is, is one example, something that's come in. But you've proposed some closer to home, easier ways that we might be able to search for stuff that have come from other stars through right. meteorites that have passed into the atmosphere, through mining the moon like, a, like an archaeological dig. So can you talk a bit about that? Yes, so in fact, uh, with my undergraduate student, uh, Amir Siraj, we found, we looked at a catalog of meteors and found one of them that uh, has orbital parameters that, that when it came into the atmosphere, uh, it came with a speed that indicates that it came from outside the solar system. And it was discovered in 2015. So it predated Oumuamua. We wrote a paper about it because the data was public and we just pointed this out. And then the reviewers of our paper argued, well, this is uh, US government data. We are not necessarily, we don't trust it uh, because the aero budget was not mentioned explicitly ob for obvious reasons that have mm. to do with national security. <laughs> right. You know, these same devices are monitoring the possibility, the, you know, the possibility of ballistic missiles sent uh, to the US. So at any event, uh, we went uh, beyond, you know, uh, we, we got the help of uh, someone that could pick uh, beyond the national security fence and tell us that the aero budget is sufficiently small so that it's definitely coming, this, this meteor came from outside the solar system. So we responded to the reviewer saying we got this information and then the reviewer and, and cited private communication with the person's name. Uh, but then the reviewer said, we don't have an official document to support it. Therefore, this paper is not accepted right. for publication. Now, uh, you know, I am still hopeful that at some point there would be a public statement made by the government on this particular object because it predated Oumuamua. This was a meteor, basically an object that came into the Earth's atmosphere and burnt up. And the importance of such objects is if they're big enough, bigger than the size of a person, uh, then they could potentially survive the going through the atmosphere and there will be a remnant uh, surviving, uh, hitting the earth or the ocean. And that offers us the opportunity to actually put our hands yeah. on the relic right. and figure out whether it's natural, whether it's a rock or whether you know a small fraction of those might be artificial. Yeah. Now, the moon, the moon has the offers is it's like a museum because it doesn't have an atmosphere so it collects everything that impacts on it and it also doesn't have geological activity so it doesn't mix up objects falling on its surface with the interior so anything that fell on the moon over the past few billion years is on the surface and one of the uh, important tasks that can be done once we have scientists on the surface of the moon looking around is to search for objects that came from outside the solar system. And, you know, maybe there is a spacecraft that crashed on the surface. We just didn't survey the surface closely enough. And uh, that would be very interesting. And the same is true about Mars, but the moon is closer. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and of course, I should say there are also objects that were trapped in the solar system because they interacted with Jupiter. They came close to Jupiter and Jupiter and the sun acts as a fishing net they collect objects uh, gravitationally 
from outside. And we could visit those objects as well. Yeah, I mean, I think about like the, the upcoming Lucy mission, which is going into the into the, the Trojan belt and the same thing. These these Lagrange points act as kind of garbage collectors for, for material. And, exactly. and I mean, from what I understand, the moon, not only interstellar objects crashing into it, but literally just a timeline of every cosmic event, every solar event, every every right. astro, you know astronomical event that's happened in in for billions of years is there in yeah, the yeah one one interesting point records. you know if there, if there were computer terminals on the surface of the earth let's say uh 3 billion years ago they're gone we can't find them in archaeological digs so if there was a civilization before us on earth you know we cannot rule it out but if they sent an apollo like mission to the moon and left some equipment there we could find it. So, um, you know, we tend to think narrowly, but I think uh, Oumuamua is a wake-up call. And that's pretty much the message I put in my book, mm -hmm. that um, we should be open-minded. Now, I get very strong emotional reaction to these discussions, which I regard as part of science, you know, and I, I basically follow the same path that I did when I dealt with the nature of dark matter in the universe, the early universe cosmology, the nature of black holes. These are topics that I worked on for decades. And when I innovated in the, on those frontiers, and you know, I, I suggested some original ideas, um, there was not much uh, pushback. You know, people said, okay, that's a nice idea. And some of these ideas led to new frontiers that initially, you know, nobody was working on, and then they became major frontiers in astrophysics. And uh, so I'm proud of that, but at the same time, I'm dismayed at the fact that uh, I get personally attacked on, uh, you know, basically applying the same approach to this subject. Why is the scientific community so hostile to this subject? So let's, let's so let's talk why, about that. Why, when the public is so excited about it. Yeah, so let's talk about that, because, I, you know, I think you, you, I mean, there have been plenty of people who have express the exact same issue that you're expressing right now, which is, you know, I've got some really interesting ideas. The, 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 the mainstream science doesn't, uh, you know, is too busy with turning the Large Hadron Collider to the next energy level and see, and just randomly seeing if, if particles will pop out, um, that there are billions and billions of dollars being spent on giant space telescopes and we're waiting for them to launch and so on and so forth. And yet a lot of really interesting ideas are not are not being explored. What do you think is the root cause of this? Well, so first let me explain that this idea, this, this subject is completely different. Why is it different? Because it matters, okay? Uh, if the dark matter is an axion or a weakly interacting massive particle, it hardly matters for our daily lives. And by the way, dark matter research is justifiably part of the mainstream because mm -hmm. we know dark matter exists. We want to find out what most of the matter in the universe is made of. Okay, but you have other aspects of the mainstream that are not even tested experimentally, sure. like, like string theory, dimensions, the multiverse, yeah. string theory, sure. and those uh, are entrenched as part of the mainstream and are respected yeah. and are honored and you ask yourself, how is that possible that there will be hostility to that, a subject that matters so much? Now, and that was my uh, question. What? And, and why does why, why? why does it matter? Why does well? Okay, first of all, why does it matter? Because it will affect our lives. No, it not, not why does it matter, but like why? Why is it? What is the root cause? I mean, I, I absolutely agree with you. Like that, there are that that there are fields that are literally untestable and yet enormous amounts of, of funding is put into them that 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 you can get a doctorate and be you know well on your way to to a lot of respect from your peers on something that has been untestable for a long period of time and on the flip side there's plenty of what sounds like perfectly fascinating testable ideas in the in the field of SETI etc which would just require a two million dollar telescope set up to to do some dedicated work right so why does this disparity exist right and i think the reason is the public cares too much about this question 
So um, in a way, to keep a distance from the popular level discussions by the public, to maintain some kind of a pedestal of the academic community relative to the public, you shy away from a subject that the public cares so much mm. about. And the reason for that is because the public already has some discussion on this question, you know, in the context of science fiction, mm -hmm. in the context of uh, unidentified flying objects or uh, aerial phenomena. Uh, and of course, you know, many of these discussions do not stand up uh, to the level of, of science. You know, they, they don't rely on evidence the way that science does. Uh, but to me, you know, naively as a kid, you know, I'm, I'm just behaving as a kid and I suffer as, you know, I get bruised uh, just like kids get bruised because they're not careful. You know, they run into objects as they try to pursue, you know, something. And mm -hmm. I, I am the same, you know, I don't do the calculation of not getting bruised and I get right. bruised by interacting with colleagues. Uh, and uh, the way I see it is that, um, you know, this subject um, could potentially uh, be linked to all these non-scientific uh, discussions. And therefore, the scientists uh, want to work in a sandbox that demonstrates that they are smart, but doesn't taint them in a non-scientific way. Hmm. So, uh, uh, you know, if you work on the mathematics of string theory, you can go to a corner where not only that you demonstrate that you are smart, not only that you do mathematical gymnastics and and, and show everyone how capable you are, but you are also doing something that will not prove you wrong because you are not testable. Mm -hmm. What you are making, you are not making predict, you are not putting skin in the game in the sense of making a prediction that will either prove that what you calculated is right or wrong. And that's the ideal place to be. If it's you want to show that you are smart and never be proven wrong so that you maintain an image sure. of a, an intellectual, then that's the place you want to be. Now, the question is, is that appropriate for physics? Physics is supposed to describe reality. Physics is supposed to address what matters to society because society funds science. You know, think about COVID-19, finding a vaccine to COVID-19 was the duty of people that are mm. capable of doing that yeah. because it serves the public. And in, in much the same way, if the public cares about whether we are alone, whether we're the smartest kid on the block, I think as a scientist, I have a duty to attend to it. And the fact that people say nonsense on the same subject is completely irrelevant because science is driven by evidence, mm -hmm. not by what people say. Now, the fact that my colleagues do not, you know, hold back on funding at the level of, I'm talking about a level of a thousand relative to the search for dark matter. You know, this subject is not funded is underfunded by a factor of a thousand. That's huge. Just think about it. Well, I mean, even like even to since fairly recent times, there was no funding for SETI. I mean, literally, you had people like the Federal, SETI Institute. Federal. They had yeah. to go and get private funding entirely. And of course, the work that's been done by by Yuri Milner for the Breakthrough Listen project for again, completely right. self-funded by by an entrepreneur. So I think you know. So how is it divided by by you know it's it's divided by infinity, not. <laughs> Like, right. it's, it's right. nothing. So, so, so you ask yourself, how is that possible? Okay, so if the scientific community would be neutral and basically say we have to be guided by evidence, then the next step would be, let's collect evidence, okay? Because, you know, if we want to detect gravitational waves, we have to invest $1.1 billion, which is what the National Science Foundation did in order for us to detect gravitational waves, open up a new frontier of gravitational wave astrophysics, which received the Nobel Prize uh, a few years ago. So you have to invest the funds in order to find evidence. And you can't just say, oh, there is no extraordinary evidence, case closed. Obviously, there will not be if you don't fund the search. And, and when I say fund, it's not funded the level of $100,000. It's funded at a level of hundreds of millions mm -hmm, of dollars. Of so course. it's a factor of 1,000. And that's what's missing. And that's why we don't have extraordinary evidence. And if you always say, you know, it must be rocks, it's never aliens, you will never find pieces of equipment like Voyager or New Horizons floating in space, even though they might exist out there. So then, I mean, is it an issue of, I mean, of course it's an issue of not enough funding to go around. Um, and, and, allowing or sort of letting a bunch of people who focused on on string theory work on their mathematics for a few decades isn't the same as as creating digging a giant hole in in Switzerland to in France so 
so and and I and I I think I so, you know like actually, actually let me correct sure uh, my my problem is not so much with the hall in France uh, my problem and as I discuss in my book is with the fact that humanity has the wrong priorities because Winston Churchill in 1939 was about to write an essay well he wrote an essay about how exciting it would be to search for life elsewhere intelligent life and then he was drafted to become the prime minister in England because the Nazis initiated the war okay Germany and uh, and just think about how many resources were wasted in that sure. war how many people died and and Churchill himself had to dedicate basically the remaining years of, of his productive career to fighting that war. Now, if instead imagine another world where uh, humanity would be wise and Churchill would write this essay and then people would say, oh, wow, let's allocate the same resources that went into World War II. Let's allocate them in, into the search for intelligence. Well, you can have that conversation today, though. I mean, every F-35 joint fighter would pay for multiple spacecraft missions. And, and, and in fact, I always sort of laugh when people bring up this. They're like, why spend all this money on space when we have all this 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 money that needs to be spent on Earth? And, and you know, and my response is it's not like it's not like there's only two things you can spend money on. How about we spend money on space fixing the Earth and not money on the military or cigarettes or excessive what? lawn care or garden gnomes what i would uh, quote is what uh, you know um was uh, uh, mentioned um by um uh, uh, was mentioned um uh, about a century ago that uh, we are all in the gutter but some of us are looking at the stars mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So and so and so, it's not just a matter of taking care of uh, the you know the routine concerns that that we have. It's it's what Oscar Wilde uh, said uh, that that implies that we you know we also need to be inspired through our life. You know and 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 you know we are born into this world like actors put on a stage without a script. We, we are not told what this life is about, what the meaning of life is, what the purpose of life is. We're trying to figure it out on our own, okay? And if you are put on a stage, the first thing you want to ask is, are there other actors on that stage? Perhaps they know some more about this play that is going on. And that's, the that's a very fundamental question. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, we should invest in addressing that question. Are there actors near us? Are there uh, or were there uh, smarter kids on the block? And why should that be regarded as speculative, as extraordinary, given that we exist? That is the ordinary thing yeah. to examine rather than extraordinary. And I would say extraordinary, you know, uh, uh, conservatism leads to extraordinary ignorance. But I think at this point, the the state of of astrobiology is leaning in the direction of of there being support for it. It's fairly recent. I mean, absolutely. You know, I've been reporting on this for twenty one years now, and have it's gone from it's a thing you don't talk about to let's talk about dumb life. And now let's talk about smart life. And so I, I would say that, that that transformation is complete. NASA is hosting seminars for people to talk about techno signatures. You've attended them, I think, or even chaired them. So, um, you know, I think at this point, you know, I don't know if the battle is won, but it definitely feels like the battle has shifted in in the favor of the of the people wanting to look for evidence. And I think well, for you as a yeah. you know you as a tenured professor at harvard with you know you're sort of perfectly positioned to be able to reap this enthusiasm for this renewed search and when i look through your papers when i look through let's look for extraterrestrial meteors let's mine the moon to see you know let's do an archaeological dig like like a lot of these ideas don't feel like they're going to take a James Webb. They feel like they're going to take a Tess. They feel like they're going to take a bunch of enthusiastic amateurs setting up 
all sky cameras looking to replicate an interstellar meteor. So do you think, do you feel that the, the that tide is turning? And well, know, what very, can you do to much, do about it? I very much hope so. That That is definitely my goal. And, um, but I do get, I, I should say, uh, I do get a lot of pushback uh, from some people. And part of the pushback uh, uh, relates to my statements that there is not enough support. Uh, and, you know, I'm a practical person. So to me, just saying nice words it does not make up for not funding uh, a frontier, you know. So really, the way to make progress is uh, to fund it, at least at the level of um, the search for dark matter, you know, because I think it's <laughs> at the very more. least, at the very least, right? That, that's, that's, you know, that's a factor of a thousand in, in federal yeah. funds. And the people that argue with me uh, are proud of the improvement by a factor of two over the past decade. So to me, that doesn't sound like much. And maybe, you know, maybe it's a matter of perspective, but uh, I think that, uh, you know, it, it, there should be sort of a, a, a revolution in the priorities. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't expect, uh, just like I, nobody expected Marie Antoinette to change uh, principles uh, during the French Revolution because she benefited from the, uh, the previous system. I don't expect people that work on uh, the various projects that are getting funded now to, to you know, and embrace a, competi a comp competing theme. Uh, but I do expect the younger generation that they will come to the scene. And, and really, my book is aimed at the younger re uh, readership. Uh, when I wrote the book, I, I told my publisher that I would be happy if uh, one person around the world would become a scientist after reading the book. And uh, uh, I'm very glad to say that I got uh, a number of emails uh, from various. Yeah, it's always amazing. They, they will become scientists. And so... Um, so that's my hope, because young people do not carry a baggage of prejudice, and uh, they're more open-minded. They don't have this um, inertia of maintaining uh, the current consensus. But how practically would you would you draw like help push this forward? Because again, you know, you, I, I mean, I think when you look at some of the other people who have been in this situation, who have advocated for an expanded search for life in the universe. And I think everybody can agree that it's one of the most fundamental questions that humanity can possibly ask, right? Are we alone in the universe? Like if you, if you gave me two envelopes, one which said, are we, the answer to are we alone in the universe? And the other one said, what is the true nature of dark matter? I would open up the alien one every single time. So, right. so, you know, and I think everyone, and I think up until now, the, Ability to collect evidence on these questions has been beyond the reach of of modern science to some degree, and the attempts have been inconclusive, which is like the worst thing for scientists. So right. now that we're at this place where we have more scientific capability, it's sort of in the zeitgeist of people's minds about this. You're in a position of authority to be able to affect change. What can be done to make this right. better? Well, I should say there is another development, and uh, we now know that um, of order half plus or minus a quarter of all the sun-like stars have a planet the size of the Earth, roughly at the same separation. So not only that we are not at the center of the universe, like uh, Aristotle advocated for, we are also, we, our backyard is not very different. The sun-Earth uh, system is common. And uh, that implies to me that, you know, out of modesty, out of humility, that you know, if you arrange for similar circumstances, you might as well get similar outcomes. Most stars from billions of years before the sun. Therefore, there should be lots of dead civilizations like ours. And they might not be around for you to get a radio signal from them the way we searched until now, but you could still do archaeology. So as a matter of a practical approach, I would advocate for uh, having a plan for uh, either launching a spacecraft with equipped with a camera when uh, future interstellar objects that look weird appear on the sky. If we get right. a warning of a year, you know, with the Vera Rubin Observatory in less than three years uh, from now that will start operation, uh, we could send a spacecraft. Uh, but another possibility is to spread cameras throughout uh, the orbit of the Earth around the sun and have them ready to maneuver as soon mm. as such objects are found. Basically have a plan. And that's my 
uh, thinking about space archaeology at the moment. Of course, if we go to the moon and establish a sustainable base there, you can search the surface of the moon that collected such objects over time. Yeah. Or you can search for meteors that move. You can even you know, automate such a search. Whenever an object shows up, you can immediately calculate uh, backwards in time, going back in time, calculate whether it was bound to the sun or not bound. Yeah. And if you flag it as an unbound object, an interstellar object, perfect target for us to go yeah. after it and check if any debris is left on the ground and study it. Yeah, you know, these that'd be are amazing. That, uh, that will not be very expensive. And of course, the only way that we will not collect that evidence is if we keep saying, you know, extraordinary evidence is required, but we don't really think that there mm -hmm. are, they are out there, and right. which is pretty much the, the, the thing you hear back all the time. But like we've, that mission that you described al is already in the works, right? Uh, the European Space Agency is already investing in a, in a, interstellar object interceptor. It's probably going to fly with the aerial spacecraft. It's going to loiter in the Lagrange point. When a potential target comes in, it's going to go after it. Um, at the same time, as you say, Vera Rubin comes online like next year. And the estimates are that we should be seeing seven plus of these interstellar objects every every year. Like, coming yeah and, yeah I so agree. i mean so it feels like the building blocks are all in place not only that james webb is going to be capable in theory of of sniffing yeah. the atmospheres no, of other star systems that the aerial telescope yeah. will be capable of 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 determining uh alien atmospheres the havix mission that like there's I, I could rattle off uh probably 20 different missions that are in various stages of the works uh nasa's NIAC program is funding various interesting ideas to propose this so the and I totally see the sort of the pushback against what you're describing, but I also see an enormous amount of support for the ideas that you're yeah. that you're so proposing. I, I, I need to I, I need to survive this wave of pushback, <laughs> uh, not swallow too much water. Yeah, and uh, you know re, uh, replace any broken bone with uh, some titanium, <laughs> and uh, basically stay there for the long haul because I do think that this is the wave of the future. I can give you a milder version of this situation. In 2013, January, I gave a lecture at the Winter School in Jerusalem about uh, gravitational wave astrophysics. I was saying this is an exciting frontier in front of students. There were a hundred students in the audience, and then. Uh, 10 minutes into my talk, one of the lecturers that gave it, you know, that spoke about a conservative astronomical subject uh, stood up. And you know, by the way, he was younger than me by 20 years. And he said, why are you wasting the time of these students on a subject that will never be relevant during their scientific career? And two years later, the LIGO, two and a half years later, the LIGO experiment uh, discovered the first gravitational wave source. And these students were still doing their PhD. So here I ask you, how is it possible that, you know, this faculty, this professor found the courage to stand up 10 minutes into my talk and in front of a video recording, tell me not to waste the time of the students when five years later, the Nobel Prize was awarded for this discovery. Okay. And the students <laughs> were still doing or right. uh, starting there. So it just shows you mm -hmm. that things do change, but you have to somehow, uh, you know, swallow all these insults and, 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 and the pushback. Uh, and what I'm trying to say, you know, is they are not necessary. These, these uh, personal attacks, you know, are really not in place, especially in the 21st century. You know, we've learned so much. Uh, we need to be open-minded. I'm not advocating for something that is completely out of this world. I'm advocating for something that we have seen, like intelligence, technological equipment here on Earth, potentially being also in space because we are sending things. Mm -hmm. So why is that so offensive to some people? Well, I, mean, I, I think I can provide you a theory, which is that you know we're at a time where science itself is is so embattled where there are people with vested interests in terms of the climate in terms of medicine in terms of just so many other things who are attempting to um make a mess of science on purpose to deliver their own ends and that's causing ripples throughout the larger society that is causing a higher level of dist distrust in scientists than ever. 
And and so you're seeing a conservatism that's always been there. I mean, I know Carl Sagan was given a hard time for for talking, wanting to help publicize science. I, as a completely private run organization, have no doesn't matter to me. But for a lot of scientists, you know, if they if what they do causes ripples throughout society, they end up feeling the consequences for it. And so uh, that's my theory, my working theory for why there is such enormous pushback. The the solution to this issue is really relying on evidence. Forget about calling it science or not science. What we need to rely on is evidence and data and clues. And, you know, when there are anomalies that are shown up in evidence, we should not brush them under the rug because what we are doing is exactly sending the opposite yeah. message to the public. What we are saying is we will cover up when things do not fit what we, you know, what we well, expect. I think we it's worth saying that. Yeah, no, I think it's worth tell you about it. Yeah, science, science is messy. The process of science of saying this, you know, that that omega-3 fats are good for you, omega-6 fats are better for you, omega-3 fats are bad for you, omega-6 fats are bad for you, blueberry is good, blueberry is bad. You know, this process of science, this is how science works. And at the same time, showing that you were wrong or having to change what you said, once you learn how this works, you find beauty and joy in the transparency of the process. Yeah, I think we should be straightforward. You know, the yes. point is science is work in progress. It's not about making a press conference when you are absolutely sure of the result. <laughs> because yeah. even if you do that, a month later you may come back and say, "Oh, I was wrong," and then it will be embarrassed. And that happens in many oh, press yeah. conferences. You know? And I think we should, instead of pretending. Uh, to be lecturers in a class in front of the public and having a pedestal on which we stand as people in academia. Instead, let's let's have a converse, a honest conversation with the public. You know, it's not about any occupation of the elite. It's about evidence, not being complete. Okay, we, we just don't know the answer until we collect enough clues, right. which is a standard facet of our daily lives. You know, sometimes, you know, the, the faucet, doesn't really work you don't know what it is you start checking and you don't have enough clues you don't figure out the solution and you know that, that's something a plumber knows anyone knows it's part of life and science operates this way we're trying to collect clues with evidence and sometimes the evidence is not sufficient for us to come up with one interpretation now if in, if you are if the evidence looks weird you know if it's something anomalous something that doesn't quite fit what we expected for sure, you know, you see something that you have never seen before. Then what's the point of shoving it under the rug, coming together like tens of people and saying, oh yeah, it must be natural. Let's not discuss it with the public. People get really upset. Why? Well, I mean, because, 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 you know, I mean, we know in psychology that when you tell somebody one thing and then you you change it later on because you've learned something new, they not only remember the previous thing, they double down. So no, 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 but you're not telling them it's definitely something. You're saying mm-hmm. it looks so weird that, you know, among the options, the menu of options that we consider, it doesn't look like any object we've seen before, and therefore it could be potentially artificial, okay? There are other possibilities in principle. And that should motivate us to get more evidence. Well, but I'm future. talking just about science in general, just this process that, that, that the true nature of scientific advance is this process done transparently of shifting back and forth based on the amount of evidence that is in front of you. How were the dinosaurs killed? Was it a volcano? Was it an asteroid? Every month, the answer changes as the evidence continues to mount and as the preponderance shifts into one direction or the other. That is beautiful and exciting. And it's like watching a sports game for us in the, in the know, but for the general public, I think the the feeling from scientists is I'm getting, they're complaining to me that yesterday you told me it was it was an asteroid. Today you're telling the volcanoes. I don't think you know anything. No, we should say from the beginning, from the start, that right. there are various possibilities, various yeah. alternatives. Not clear yet. And I don't so think that conversation is being had. You know, the, the king, the emperor, has no clothes. Yeah. You know? and therefore, you know, it's always work in progress. Now, the other thing to keep in mind is. Uh, you know, nature is more imaginative than we are. So quantum mechanics was discovered a century ago and took a lot of scientists out of their comfort zone. Albert Einstein argued that it cannot have spooky action at a distance. 
20 years later, you mm -hmm. know, he would still not agree with one of the fundamental facets of, of quantum mechanics. And, and he was proven wrong. He suggested an experiment and the experiment was done and he was proven wrong. And now we are a century later, still out of our comfort zone mm -hmm. because we cannot intuitively understand the meaning of quantum mechanics but nature doesn't care about it. <laughs> yeah, that, totally. And the point is, we have all of our devices. You know, the, the two of us are communicating, you know, through computers, through the internet. All of that is based on quantum mechanics. And the fact that we don't understand it at the fundamental level doesn't pre prevent us from creating the technologies that we use all the time. So it's work in progress, you know, and we should admit that it's work in progress. We shouldn't pretend to be smarter than we are. Right. Sometimes we are wrong. You know, Einstein was wrong. So do what, you think, and so I guess what I'm trying to say is I think that scientists are, and even the people who are responsible for communicating the work of scientists do a bad job of a, showing people that it's always a work in progress. Yes, and because that, it's a lot, because I'll tell you why, because many people that are engaged in pursuing science are using it as a tool for demonstrating something else, in mm -hmm. particular, demonstrating that they are smart, demonstrating that they know something well beyond anyone else, that they are sophisticated. Or they're trying and to protect their job. Really, that's not really the, yeah, the job definition that, you know, just to give you an example, you know, support, let's just imagine that Oumuamua was uh, a technological relic. It doesn't require sophisticated math. So what? It would have a huge impact on society. So who said that in order to impact society, you need to work in extra dimensions? Why, why is mathematical sophistication <laughs> yeah. a necessary condition? I have course, no explanation for that. If you want to demonstrate that you are intellectual, that you are very smart, that you are capable of doing mathematical manipulations that most people cannot do, I'm, then of course... The, the explanation that I can give you is that the back and forth explanation arguments that are had by the scientists have no implications to the general public. That the well, general public doesn't care whether the muon uh, G minus two experiment has demonstrated uncertainty in the standard model or not. Well, you know, it was true many centuries ago that the theologians or philosophers were arguing about how many angels can sit on the tip of a, of a pin, you know, and, and, and obviously it had no relevance to the daily lives of other people. And uh, but also, if you think about Aristotle, he was the most widely respected philosopher for a thousand years, and he had a beautiful model of spheres surrounding us, which pretty much reflects the mentality of my daughters when they were infants. You know, they thought the world centers on them. And then they went to the kindergarten and saw other kids and realized that's not true. So my daughters already recognize something that Aristotle didn't recognize, which is that we are not the center of the universe, okay? And it was a beautiful model. It was sophisticated, very intellectual. People loved it because it, uh, you know, it, it allowed them to appreciate themselves more than usual. Uh, you know, that's a, whenever you flatter the ego of people, you know, you, you get much more support. And uh, my point is, it's not about us. It's about nature. Mm -hmm. You can get as much, your ego boosted as much as you want, but nature would behave the way it is. It is what it is. Mm -hmm. And there could be spacecrafts flying through the solar system. You can say forever that all of them are rocks, but nature doesn't care about it. Of course. And, 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 and all I'm saying is that I feel like the source of this comes from the, the difficult conversation that science is, is, is putting off having with the general public about the way science is done. The, the process that we all rely on, the one that puts out the evidence, that proposes the, that, that looks at the different ones, weighs the one that has the most evidence, suggests that that's probably the most likely one, but they can't wait to change their mind for a new one. Again, if I showed you a clear nitrogen, you know, line in the, you know, if I did a uh, spectral analysis of the, of Oumuamua and showed you, oh, here's the nitrogen that explains what it is, you would change your mind in a heartbeat. Immediately. Yeah. yeah. Immediately. And so that's how, si and that's how science works. And that I feel is where the reticence comes from, from the scientific community is that. Well, let, let me tell you another aspect of, of me, which is that I don't feel um, privileged in any way. You know, I feel that 
there must be a lot of people just like me who didn't have the opportunity to pursue a scientific career. And, uh, you know, I grew up on a farm. I collected the eggs every afternoon and I was connected to nature. And um, I just don't see myself any different from anyone else in, in society. And I, I, I think of science as a way of life, you know, just the way I think about anything that happens to me. It's exactly the same way as I think about scientific questions. And uh, therefore, I don't feel elevated. I don't need the ego boost associated with academia. You know, I really enjoy thinking about the, the problems themselves. And uh, it's not, you know, and, and so uh, when, when dealing with uh, an object and when dealing with a singularity of a black hole, you know, that requires a lot of math, I would adopt the same approach. Uh, I mean, because I'm just trying to figure out what it's all about. You know, when I had a flood in the basement at home, uh, it turned, turned out that the sewer was clogged by tree roots. And when I was working with the plumber, then it occurred to me that, uh, you know, it's exactly the same problem. You know, I've never thought about where the water goes when it goes down the drain. You know, it goes through the sewer to some reservoir uh, and uh, it never occurred to me until it was clogged the sewer was clogged and uh, then i started thinking what happens to matter that falls into a black hole it must go somewhere and it it must collect somewhere so it could collect on an object at the center of a black hole like at a very high density Planck density or it could go to another universe or through a wormhole or whatever but it's still a fundamental question and I don't see any difference from trying to figure out what is clogging my sewer than what is the nature of a singularity of a black hole. It's, well, you know, I mean, not only that, you were called upon by the Event Horizon Telescope Group to help coordinate the simulations to help predict what the telescope would see. So, I mean, you know, I've been following your work for a decade ago. I was mentioning before we actually started this 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 conversation that, you know, we've actually got a guy on our team at Universe Today who's on the Avi Loeb beat. He literally, his job is to write up pretty much every one of your paper because each one tickles the imagination, offers either just tantalizing ideas about just what could be possible if you let your imagination run free and at the same time let you... Uh, propose concrete ways that some evidence could be searched for some of these things. And I think that you are in a better position than literally anybody I've ever met to, to carry these ideas forward into finding evidence. You have the authority, you have the, you have, you know, you have sycophants like me ready to publish your every word. Um, and, and so I think that you're, I think that you're well positioned to to have people shift over into a a world of of searching for this evidence. I think the well, it's you. it's yours thank to you lose. The, thank you for the support. I, I really appreciate it. But you have to understand that there are people trying to tackle me also now. That uh, you've got so tenure, man. Who cares? I know, I know exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, that's. But uh, you know the publicity was quite unprecedented uh, for the book, uh, and that's what uh, makes a lot of people try to tackle me. And you know that the, I had of order 450 interviews over two and a half months, basically oh. 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. It was really exhausting, and I, the way I viewed it, is not so much uh, uh, as a way of publicizing anything, but the message. You know, I, I was using it as a platform to convey my message that science can be exciting and that, you know, the most exciting frontiers are not being followed. And uh, I, I think it's an, you know, that that is really the message that I try to put in my book that I try mm -hmm. to convey. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and I think it's true. And, and, you know, I enjoy, like, for example, I finished some of my leadership positions recently. The, the term ended. And, uh, like, I've been uh, three terms department chair at Harvard. And um, um, and so um, to me, it's uh, a relief in the sense that I can go back and create, do creative work. Uh, I was doing that as a service to the community. And for me, the thrill of existing is actually trying to figure out the world. You know? So and what comes next? What is the what is the idea that, as I said, you know, this is like a book written months ago that came out months ago that was probably conceived months ago. What is the idea that's capturing your imagination right now? Oh, yeah, I'm uh, starting to work on the next book. That's one. Uh, I have another textbook coming out in 
less than in, in about two and a half months at the end of June uh, called the life in the cosmos. And that is more than 800 pages long. It's a scientific wow. textbook on the subject of my popular level uh, book. But I'm actually starting to think about the next uh, writing project. And at the same time, I have, um, you know, for the five uh, students working with me, and I have many postdocs and many collaborators throughout the world. And uh, every day is a new day. You know, I've, I've, I'm getting new ideas every day. I really, you know, if you ask me what am I worried about is that I'll wake up one morning and I will have no ideas. That's impossible. That, that is the thing that worries me the most. And if that happens, I will go into politics and administration. I <laughs> know there's there's, there's uh, literally no way that you will run out of so ideas. It's actually a relief that uh, I was I'm I'm not you know I'm I'm finishing some terms because you know it was a service to the community but but uh, I still have ideas you know I still enjoy the process of learning and I still feel that I'm just like I was as a kid and you know and uh, there is nothing more fun than being sincere, honest, and, uh, you know, figuring out things that were never figured out before, especially if they're the most important question, mm -hmm. you know, like, are we the smartest kid on the, you know, what could be bigger than that? It's a huge question. Uh, uh, there is pushback against it. There is mm -hmm. an opportunity for major discoveries. You know, it's just the kind of frontier that you can never dream about. And, and so I'm, I was so lucky to, to, come across it as a result of the wake up call by Oumuamua. And 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 it really feels like that was like this bolt of lightning for you. The one that got you sort of kicked into the next next gear. But right. but I mean you you know again you go back in the papers and you have been you've been exploring and mulling over these kinds of ideas for for decades. So That's I, interesting that you're saying that because uh, when I look back, you know, I look back at the interviews that I gave at uh, five, ten years ago, and the seeds of what I'm saying right now were already planted in those interviews. And, you know, it's interesting, but um, yeah. um, they came to fruition much more um, prominently uh, recently, but, but you can still find the same me if you go back and look at things that I've said the decades ago. And, and that's why I'm saying, you know, people that know me would tell you that I'm, I'm no different than I was as a kid. You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm pretty much the, what you see is a kid. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, that has its uh, positive, but it also has its negatives in the sense that I'm straightforward. I tell you what I think. I'm not trying to manipulate people. And I, I, I you know, and what you see is what you get. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, so do you have a book, a copy of the book handy that you can hold up? Oh, sure. I have it in many languages. Which one do you want? Oh, whichever's the newest one. I'm learning Mandarin. Do you have that one yet? Not yet. Oh, okay, okay. It comes out in 27 uh, editions and 24 uh, languages. One second. Yeah. I should have uh, I should have reminded him in advance. Thanks for the conversation, everybody. Sorry I didn't take any of your questions. Uh, okay, so here here are the various uh, editions. All right, uh, this is the British one. It's uh, interesting; um, they always do a different cover in England. Yeah, and and it, I I sort of like it because uh, they also put. Uh, a photograph of me uh, that my daughter took uh, during the pandemic, which looks uh, actually better than a professional That's photographer. That's good. She put her on staff, yeah. And, uh, then uh, uh, this is from, uh, I believe it's uh, the Netherlands. I uh, just got it um, a few days ago. Here is the Spanish version uh, <clears throat> that uh, not only in Spain, but also in Latin America came out. Um, here is the German version. And uh, of course, there is the, the French version, and this is the uh, American version. Oh, that's awesome. Um, well, again, thank you. I mean, I hope people, 
I mean, people probably don't even know how uh, how much you've been supportive of the work that we've been doing at Universe Today. You've always been immediate to answer any questions that we've got, even if they're not on work that you're working on. You know, like like, like we've reached out about your 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 opinions of other stuff as well. And and I think it's great that you are connecting with the public and in in public forums like this. I know you you're loath to go onto social media. I do not blame you. Uh, that it's it's a it's you know if you want to talk about getting uh, getting a beat down. Um, I, I should say you're doing a fantastic job at Universe Today, and the name, the title, Universe Today, is very appealing to me because I always thought that the State of the Union address at some point should <laughs> speak about the state of the universe. The Universe Today, uh, yeah, yeah. You know because we you know we we know that the universe is not only expanding but accelerating, and the future will be very lonely for us. So. I, I wish that one of our future presidents will talk about the state of the universe as well. <laughs> that would be amazing, yeah. Um, so if people want to find out more about what you're working on, um, where should they go? They should just put my name in Google, Avi Loeb, and they can find the, my website where everything is listed. The, uh, there is There are the news uh, uh, publications and and, and and also videos from interviews in yep. various uh, outlets and and also my scientific publications and my uh, commentaries in Scientific American. Roughly once per week or two, I have a new uh, commentary in Scientific American. Absolutely. All right. Well, Avi, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Really appreciate it. And, uh, and good luck with all of your new projects and an 800-page book. That sounds like madness. Thank have you fun. so much. All right. Take Pleasure. care. Bye-bye. Always, I find the need to find the button. All right.